Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to read starting at verse 9 to the end of, end of the book. Let's pray as we find the place together. Father, we do thank you for uh, this uh, book in your Bible, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We've enjoyed studying it, and as we come to the end, we pray that uh, its message about the end of all things would reverberate in our hearts and minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12, friends, beginning at verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. Uh, excuse me, let me start again. Ecclesiastes 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, beginning verse 9. I'm reading from the NIV. You've got the ESV. Let me, let me do the ESV. Here we go. Let's start again. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed at the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter always been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do please sit down. Just uh, before we uh, uh, begin uh, this morning, let me, I've just been asked to make an announcement uh, about our year-end giving. So everyone has been so generous this year, it's, it, not just financially, I mean in every way. And it's been an amazing year in, in so many uh, different regards. Uh, I'm told that the next few weeks, between now and the end of the year, represent 25% of our total annual budget, which is about 1.4 million. And so obviously this is a focal point. And we make this announcement, not because there's any problem or because we're complaining or anything like that. It's been a great year. You've been very, very generous. But because sometimes, if we don't, people will say, if only I'd known, there would have been something I could do. So this is for information. Uh, those resources go to fund much mission locally and globally, outreach, uh, taking care of people practically, the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, here and around the world, 222 missionaries, uh, 15 seminaries in 50 countries. And so... That's just by way of information at this season. Tis the season to be merry. Tis the season for year-end giving announcements. So, um, so there we have it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at uh, verse 9 and going to verse 14. And obviously, am I a little quiet this morning? Is this, can this be turned up a little bit? Uh, I may be ca catching my... There we go. My, my daughter's cold, so that's better. Uh, obviously, this passage has at its uh, heart this issue of fearing God and fear. And fear is not very Christmas-like, is it? It's more, well, Scrooge than Santa, I suppose, if anything. And uh, you may say to yourself, uh, should we ever be thinking about fear? 
is not the only thing we have to fear, fear itself. Uh, as uh, was famously said by uh, FDR. Or um, perhaps in popular culture, is it not true that fear leads to anger, anger to hate, and hate to suffering? Uh, you can see who's under 40, who's laughing then, but uh, that's, that's Yoda uh, in Star Wars. And so whether in sort of, you know, elite history, FDR, or popular culture, fear is not very politically correct. And so people tend to use a, a pair of scissors and cut it out of their Bibles, whether literally or metaphorically. Now, of course, it's fair, fair enough, it's reasonable enough to sometimes be a little cautious about using the language of fear, because fear can be neurotic. Uh, it, it, it can be bad for you to fear things. Um, but is fear sometimes good I'm reminded even of the, the singer Pavarotti who once said that uh, he, he said uh, he was afraid of high notes. Am I afraid of high notes, he asked. Of course I am afraid. What sane man is not, you see. So there, there are some things that it's reasonable to be frightened about. Uh, some things that even... Even to achieve a degree of excellence, some aspect of fear is required, whether sporting or musical. Uh, my grandfather won a medal for bravery in the First World War. I never met him. He died before I was born. But uh, I'm told uh, by others who have been very courageous that courage is not actually the absence of fear. It's overcoming your fears. And so I would guess that most people would say that in some situations fear is appropriate as long as what you're frightened of is real or the fear is commensurate to the level of the objective thing you're frightened about. And in the right circumstances, those fears may be overcome to be brave. If fear is sometimes good... Is it ever good to fear God? And usually people say, well, when we talk about fearing God, we mean respecting Him, you know. But there, there, there is a reason why the Bible uses the word fear. I mean, it does mean respect, but fear has a little more of an edge to it, doesn't it? Is it ever good to fear God? Well, we know, you and I both know, that there have been hellfire preachers who have manipulated people down through the years, and that has been the case. Uh, even, I've studied Jonathan Edwards a lot, and sometimes people have called his approach wrongly, in my view, theological terrorism, you see. Uh, but nonetheless, there have been people who have manipulated others by talking about hellfire, you know, with a subtext of something else. That's certainly true. But then, is it not also the case that rather more recently than the 18th century, there have been a lot more preachers who have been guilty of the opposite tendency? That is never mentioning the fear of God. Don't you think so? I mean, if there's any kind of balance here, we're certainly on that end of God as Santa Claus, aren't we? 
you know, sort of politically correct Santa Claus who's checking his list twice, you know, and, and even more than Santa Claus. He's going to give his gifts whether you've been naughty or nice, you see. Uh, sort of God as a, a benign great-grandfather figure with a white beard and a, and a, and a beatific smile, you see. That's the predominant picture, right? But is that the biblical picture? And uh, is that actually the way to generate worship attendance? (laughs) Genuine worship of God. You see, people like me don't preach fear because they think if they do, you know, some people won't come back next week. But actually, is that wrong thinking? I mean, would you elect a president who was, you know, someone you could not respect? Or, or would you send your children to a, a, a school with a principal who, who, you know, never had any kind of discipline? It seems to me that actually to try to worship God without respecting Him is like trying to have a relationship without respect. Not going to last very long. And it also seems to me that perhaps the reason why in some places at least worship attendance is on the decline is not because people are preaching the fear of God, because they're not. It may be because they need to preach the fear of God. Uh, You, if you are a student and a scholar of the Bible, may know that these verses have been debated endlessly as to how they fit into Ecclesiastes' overall theme. They certainly are a bit of a change of tactic. he's, He's been this agent provocateur all the way through, sort of throwing out ideas for shock tactic. And now suddenly he sounds like a 18th century hellfire preacher, kind of, you know, fear God sort of thing. And so people wonder whether this really fits with the rest of the book. In my mind, it actually does. It fits rather well. Now, imagine with me, if you can, just as if you're playing a a movie. You've downloaded a movie from iTunes, and you're playing the pictures in your head, and you can see all the pictures of Ecclesiastes flicking across your mind's eye uh, uh, like, like a movie. You can see the picture of the, of the laborer under the sun working hard but never really getting anywhere. You can see the picture of the, of the businessman gathering money but realizing it doesn't mean anything under the sun without relationship to God. And so everything in Ecclesiastes' movie has been depicted, every aspect of human life. It has all been cast in the light of vanity under the sun. And what's left? God. It's all his, his game plan all along to get here. Fear God. And that, of course, is uh, God's answer to atheism. Atheists, when they try and construct their value system, cannot appeal to God as the one who gives us these values. They appeal to human society, each other, the, the way we interrelate as humans. Atheists have, must have a humanistic value system. 
And of course, what Ecclesiastes does, verse after verse, page after page, chapter after chapter, is say, everything under the sun, all that is human in a secular sense, that doesn't work. It is vanity. And what we're left with then is God. See, the theme of this passage is a noumenal honor before the person of God, or fear God, in other words. How are we meant to fear God? Well, look down with me at verses 9 to 12. There there are three ways. We're just going to go through them. The first way, I think, is in verses 9 to 12, and then the second in verse 13, and the final in verse 14. 9 to 12, I think, is a kind of whole section, and there he's talking about the limits of human knowledge, you see. And so if you look at verse 9, he is wise, so he, he has knowledge, Ecclesiastes. And then if you, again, you look at verse 9, not only is he wise, he's a, he's a really good teacher. He's a first-rate teacher. He's, he's taught the people knowledge and arranged Proverbs with great care and all that. And not only is he a teacher, if you like, he's a researcher as well. He, so verse 10, he sought to find words of delight. Obviously not in a modern empirical scientist sense, but he's seeking out these, these beautiful words, these words of delight, and words of truth he wrote. So he's not only wise, he's not only a teacher, he's not only a researcher, he's an author as well. He's a public intellectual, in other words. And he does this because, verse 11, he realizes that such knowledge is very useful. The words of the wise are like goads, that is, they prod you in a certain direction. They're like nails, that is, they fix you to solid ground. So there's a pragmatic purpose to this knowledge, this uh, sort of ministry, this preaching, this uh, 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 knowledge that he has as as a public intellectual. What's more, he's doing it with some theological um, overarching coherence. So again, verse 11, all this comes from one shepherd, which I, I think, as we will see, he's talking then about the way that these things cohere. There are many different words, many different sayings, but all come from one source, one shepherd. There's a, there's a coherence to this knowledge. There is a wholeness to it. So Ecclesiastes is not a Luddite, a simpleton, or an obscurantist. He is not stupid. And yet, he says, verse 12, beware of anything beyond these. So there's a limit. When I was at Cambridge, one of the, one of the sayings was that when people came up as an undergraduate at Cambridge, they thought they knew everything. You know, they'd be a big fish in a small pond, and they come up to Cambridge and realize that really they're no great shake, right? And then by the end of their undergraduate experience, they think, well, maybe they know some things. That would be the perception. And then if they went on to get a PhD, at the end of the PhD, the saying was, you know, so as you, as you come in, you think you know everything. As you come out of an undergraduate, you think you know some things. By the end of your PhD, you think you know something about one thing. Maybe, you see. And similarly, he's talking about the limits of human knowledge, not because he doesn't know a lot, but because he does. 
and, and realizes that, uh, well, of making many books, there is no end. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. You could try that with your professor next time he encourages you to write something, perhaps. It's in the Bible, professor. Shouldn't do too much study. Feeling a little tired right now. Can I take a break, please? But of course, actually, this fearing God is not just uh, school uh, knowledge that he's now relating this fearing God to. It's actually every kind of knowledge, you see. Street-wise, business-wise, every kind of um, insight. Well, what does it mean practically? Well, it means that, uh, you know, if you're going to acknowledge the limits of your human knowledge, it means that you make a good use of what you know. So he was a preacher who taught the people knowledge. His, his knowledge was not an end in itself. He knew there was a greater end, that is honoring God, that is being of public benefit, that is using the training that you have received for the good of the kingdom of God, not for self-aggrandizement. That's a model of limiting our human knowledge. It has a limited purpose in itself. It must be used for something else. And then, of course, it also means if your own knowledge is limited that you listen carefully to the words of the wise because you know you still have more to learn. Hence, uh, in verse 11, you realize, like he does, that the collected sayings are goads and nails, and you want to make sure that the, the Word of God, as it is preached this morning, is going to goad you in the right direction, and it's going to nail your convictions down so that you're listening carefully. That's wisdom. That's fearing God, that your knowledge is limited, as is mine. That's why I study hard, you see. Sometimes, of course, knowing that your knowledge is limited means an approach to dealing with doubts. In other words, you recognize that some things you can get the answers to, some things you can find other people who have the answers to, but there are other things that only the fear of God is the answer to. That that God is just bigger than you, that He knows, even if you don't. The Trinity substitutionary atonement, total depravity. You try and wrap your mind around some of these concepts, and if you're wise, you'll realize there's an end to what you can understand, and you have to submit to what God teaches. That's the wise person. For as uh, I think it was J.G. Vos who said that the atheist is the person who thinks they can contain God in their mind. You see, oh no, you cannot. You have to recognize the limits of your human knowing. And in the end, uh, what is this like? Well, it's like being a child of God. So verse 12, it is my son that he's talking to. My son, for where have anything beyond these? Not being infantile, but the meekness that is strength under control, the, the lowliness that is greatness, all those kind of paradoxical things that the rest of Scripture outlines for us. So first, fearing God by acknowledging the limit of human knowing, my human knowing, your human knowing. That's real wisdom. Wise people are like that, he's saying. People who fear God have that kind of wisdom, 
he is saying. Well, the second way is in verse 13, which reads, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So how do we fear God? Well, this way is by keeping his commandments. Now, of course, when we, when we talk about God's commandments, it's very easy to begin to feel that they are legalistic, that they are rules made by people, religious ritual. Yeah. You know, don't drink, don't dance, what do you do? You know, um, don't chew and don't go with girls that do, or whatever it is, you know. Um, but this, this, these are not human religious commandments. It doesn't say, fear God and keep the rules of your particular denomination. And that may be a good thing to do sometimes, but he's talking about God's word. His commandments. And the strangest thing about this is when you come to the end of the matter... This is where you end up. You see, Ecclesiastes has tried everything, even some rather dubious things that might have gotten thrown out of some rather conservative institutions. Wine, women, and song. Books, learning, fake religion. He has searched for meaning. He has traveled far. But when he comes to the end of himself, he comes to God and his commandments. And even perhaps stranger than ending up in this place is his proposition, his idea, that this is the whole duty of man. Now again, we have to work hard not to fit that phrase into some kind of legalistic understanding that perhaps we would tend to have. I think there in the Hebrew, there's a sense that this whole duty of man is wholeness, holistic, So what he's saying is, previously he was saying one thing and doing another. His life was compartmentalized. He he couldn't put it together. But now when he comes to the end of himself and falls on his knees and worships God, now he finds that he is a whole tapestry, a whole picture. He has been healed This is the wholeness of people, fearing God by keeping his commandments. Even more, though, look at verse verse 13 Uh, again, and you can see that uh, verse 13 here not only talks about fearing God by keeping his commandments as this is the end and this is wholeness, but it actually then is assuming that this God speaks. How else do you keep his commandments if you don't know what they are? And so in a sense, this verse 13 is, is solving the greatest problem that we have, which is not so much perhaps God's existence, but his, his message for us this morning. I rather like sometimes the, uh, the author Frederick Buchner uh, he, he wrote some interesting things. I don't know whether I agree with everything he wrote. I'm not saying that, but he, he wrote some interesting things. And he w- one time said that proving God's existence is as impossible as Sherlock Holmes proving the existence of Arthur Conan Doyle. 
if you think about that, you see? You know, the created proving the, creation, uh, the creator. And then he went on to say that even though such philosophical proofs might be possible, and I think actually they, you know, by a, a fides ut intellegam way, by a faith leading to understanding where they are, uh, but even in his mind, if they are possible, he said, they do not answer the fearful depths of our need. I love that phrase, the fearful depths. What are your fearful depths? God has nothing to say to you this morning. That your position, your situation is beyond his message. Maybe the answer is right here. Maybe the answer isn't through doing a Google search for what the meaning of life is. Maybe the answer is right here. That he is actually speaking through his word. See, it assumes a speaking God, doesn't it? That by his spirit, that voice can be heard. You can hear that voice now. That's what happens when you get to the end of yourself. You say, God, do you have something to say to me? And you find he does. So I pray you would find that this morning. That is the path of wisdom. It is the path of fearing God. The limits of human knowing, and therefore you listen to God. Are you listening? I hope so. Here is the answer. Fear God by keeping his commandments second. First, by acknowledging the limits of human uh, knowledge. And then third, look down with me at verse 14. This is a future perspective. And at the end of this, uh, this book, he concludes in a rather strange place, but it's actually essential in many ways to conclude here. Uh, let's see why. So third, the future perspective How do you fear God with this future perspective? So verse 14, 4, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, there you go. Merry Christmas. It's a strange word in this context, but even in the context of this book, isn't it? Uh, As you may remember, he's doubted whether the human spirit goes up or down or and he's even in his agent provocateur way, in his shock tactic way, said, you know, make the most of today, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, you see. And now, judgment. <laughs> now, what, what's going on here? Well, I think what's going on here is Ecclesiastes is saying, when you get to the end, you find God, and inevitably... You have to realize one day you will stand before him who knows the secrets of every human heart. He's saying if you haven't thought about judgment lately, it might be time to do so. Now, of course, judgment is a a subject that can only be handled with great delicacy Uh, 
But nonetheless, he is a fool who does not quake before judgment. Why is it good news thinking about judgment? It is good news because the prospect of the judgment of God is a merciful provision for your faith. I know what you're like. You're a human like me. Am I correct? Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you think, you know, I don't really feel like obeying God's commandments. Sometimes you, uh, you look into the mysteries of the universe and you think, you know, I can figure this out and why do I need God? You don't acknowledge the limits of human knowing. And then the merciful provision for faith. One day all the shenanigans will be exposed with the prospect of God's judgment. It's a merciful provision for your faith. Now, of course, he, he doesn't go to where Jesus goes to. He doesn't here talk about hell fire, which Jesus does. This verse does not go there. It, it, it merely, shall I say merely, with, with his side of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he's, he's just got a future perspective. He knows there will be a judgment. We know more than that now. But he knows there will be a judgment. And as I say, such a subject can only be handled with delicacy, or some preachers have said, only with tears. Not that I'm going to try and weep now, but there has to be a tenderness of heart. But it's also a subject that's very easy to dismiss as soon as you mention it. What right does God have to judge me? Well, that's why this is all about the fear of God, not of you. And I find this as hard as you do. I trust I do not appear judgmental because I talk of God's judgment that is the final nail in the coffin of secular humanistic confidence. I am all for joie de vivre and having fun and, you know, playing ping pong or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I, really, I mean, I don't always wear a dark suit or stand behind a pulpit. But when I am standing behind a pulpit, whether I'm wearing a dark suit or not, I have to be governed by this. This is not my judgment. It is God's judgment. Cry, rocks fall upon us, the prophet said. And I find this appalling, perhaps, as strange as you do in my human-centered way of looking at life. It's not easy for me to think of God as a, as a person, as the creator, as the, the God of commandments. So how can we think about this? Well, do we actually want God not to judge at all? I find there are very few people like that who, who feel in that way. After all, is there no room in your concept of judgment for a Hitler to be judged, even if the rest of us, even if you get off lightly? After all, will there be no final reckoning for the genocide? Is that just going to be swept under the carpet? 
As hard as it is to believe in a God in the face of uh, the difficulties of this world, it is unacceptable, I think, to believe in a God who will not judge, who will not right the wrong. That's what made David say in his psalm that he envied the wicked until he saw their final destiny. Certainly it's true that right behavior is often rewarded now, but it's not always, is it? No, only then in the future, in the judgment of God, can a rational person find space for faith in a good God in this fallen world. And if we accept that God may, perhaps we want to say must, judge some, then on what basis and who and why some and why some not? And you see, as we begin to pull back the layers of this onion, unless we have the judgment of God at the core, we find nothing by which to judge. C.S. Lewis famously said, you only have to listen to people arguing to realize uh, this necessity of some universal standard. People, when they argue, say, that's not right, or you did me wrong, and by so doing, they are acknowledging a universal standard, appealing to one. And of course, today we reject all of that, we want tolerance and, and all the rest. And yet even that, even a desire for tolerance for everyone is an appeal, isn't it, to a moral standard for everyone. In fact, of course, ironically, the one thing that someone who thinks that we should be tolerant of every faith cannot stand is someone who says there's only one way to God. Yes, actually, the only way not to have human judgmentalism I don't mean all religious forms of ideas of God's judgment, but biblical idea of God's judgment. The only way not to have human judgmentalism is to have God as the judge. Otherwise, either you or I or some group or some tribe are setting the terms of the debate. Now, it is a little shocking when you come to the end of this sermon, but then that shouldn't be news for us because practically everything he writes is shocking. He didn't begin like I would have done, and he's not ending like I would have done. In fact, so alarming was this ending that some of the rabbinic uh, readings of the book uh, repeated verse 13 after verse 14 to try and give it a soft landing, if you like. And I understand that desire, much as I understand the people who find the rest of the book difficult to live with for some of the strange things it says, and yet... Solving our textual problems by the cut-and-paste technique of editorial bowdlerizing is really not good enough. We have to accept this as it is. It does not end with verse 13. It ends with verse 14. This future perspective. Ecclesiastes, I think, is saying that when we come to the end of our journey... And we find that we are at the end of ourselves. All we are left with is God. And he wants to underline that, that that fear for us. And actually, of course, even he realizes it's not really him who wants to underline it. 
It's the one shepherd who coheres all truth who wishes to help us with this prospect of judgment as a merciful provision for faith. Fear, you see, especially at Christmas, ends in hope. One of the most well-known carols of them all, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What do you think those fears are about? Where is salvation going to come from? How am I going to face judgment? The strange future prospect of a baby. Or oh, we, we sung this just earlier this morning. Then entered in their three, uh, wise men three, well, who knows whether there are three, but anyway. uh, Then entered in their wise men three, full upon their knee. And offered there in his presence their gold and myrrh and frankincense. It's a baby. (laughs) They're falling on their knees. The hopes and fears are met in thee tonight. The fear of guilt, gone. The fear of judgment. If you will gather around the baby and offer your worship, your love, your faith, the fear of judgment, gone. Nothing left but worship, the blessing of heaven, Christ entering in. If you will receive him. I suppose, in a way, that, of course, Ecclesiastes lived a long time before it was fulfilled, that then the final answer to atheism is Bethlehem. That's a surprise to human arrogance, isn't it? The answer to the biggest conundrums that Einstein or quantum mechanics or genetic genome discoveries. How does God answer that? With a baby. (laughs) Will you bow and worship Christ the King? If you fear God, you will. Let's pray together. Father, we so often trivialize church even trivialize each other. 
we play our computer games or our watch our videos or, or busy ourselves in life's activities. Thank you for this merciful provision for faith, the prospect of judgment. Thank you, Father, that uh, these hopes and fears then drive us to Bethlehem to worship, to kneel. to follow Jesus again. We pray you give us the strength to do so. By your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.